Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, is the incarnation logically coherent? Ken addresses that question on part two of two on defending the incarnation. Uh, Ken, maybe you can uh, help remind people who missed the first one or need a reminder of some of the content and how that flows right into the second one. Yes, the, the doctrine of the incarnation, of course, is, I think, arguably one of Christianity's greatest truths. I mean, we're, salvation is possible because Jesus is God and man. And so this, this idea that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, or we'll call him the Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature and became man. Jesus was both God and man. And as we talked about in our previous program, uh, the church hammered out kind of the elements of this, that uh, Jesus uh, has two natures, but is a single individual. And um, this raises challenges, Joe, that I want to talk about it. It raises challenges of of logic how how can you say that one being or one person has conflicting qualities he he has divine qualities then he has human qualities but the problem with divine and human qualities is they clash uh, both of them can't be true then you have another coherence question the other coherence question is how could jesus be God having a, a divine mind and a divine will, and yet also being man having a human mind and a human will. Doesn't that make two persons? How can you have one person with two natures? Mm-hmm. But before we get into all of that, I again want to underscore how remarkable I think that this doctrine is. And maybe maybe we only think about it at Christmas time. And I think we should think about it a lot more. Uh, in the last program, I quoted from J.I. Packer, his, his contemporary classic book, Knowing God. Packer was uh, a, a British citizen uh, who became uh, an, a Christian evangelical, was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a young man. Uh, he was an Anglican, came to America, lived in Canada, uh, was the editor of Christianity Today, became a leading uh, Reformed Anglican theologian. In his remarkable book, Knowing God, he says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. I think this is a message that the world needs to hear. And I think it needs to hear, uh, it needs to hear it for many different reasons. Uh, But one reason, during the pandemic, um, I remember watching a a Roman Catholic uh, scholar being interviewed and he was the president of a a Catholic hospital that reached out to people in the area of mental health. He said prior to the pandemic, about one in five Americans were seeking mental health assistance. He said a year into the pandemic, it had had risen to 40%. Mm. Um, 
people, both doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists talk about a pandemic of loneliness. Um, well, think about it. The idea that God has come into the world and Jesus suffered and died. Uh, he knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to go to work. He was a carpenter. He knows what it's like to have uh, family problems. At, at one point, even his mother, along with his siblings, thought that they may have to take control over him. I wonder, did they think that Jesus suffered some kind of mental delusion? Uh, well, that's a, that's a difficult issue. Um, Jesus also suffered uh, in his, in his soul, in his body. Uh, these, are, these are such important questions, and we also mentioned in the last show, Joe and Dave, how many apologetic issues arise about this, uh, the, the hiddenness of God. Well, did God make an appearance in the world? Then he's not hidden. Uh, liberal challenges that this, that his divinity was invented over a long period of time that the early Christians really didn't think that were true. In the last program, we talked a bit about uh, these early hymns and creeds that are interwoven into scripture that have an early date, a very early date, and are and also reflect a high Christology. And we talked about our uh, the religious discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Jews, with Muslims, uh, how this is a, a unique uh, doctrine. But in our time today, I'd like to spend the, the bulk of our time looking at certain logical questions that are raised. Now, re now remember that if I can show your view involves a contradiction, uh, this is called a reductio ad absurdum argument. That is, you have an argument. Let's say you're arguing for the incarnation. If I can show that your argument involves a logical contradiction, then I can with good confidence say your argument is wrong and false. It can't be true. So um, that's, that's a very important component. And some people would say that the incarnation is not coherent or that it involves such serious problems. We have to be doubtful about it. So I want to address some of that. Very good. Okay, well, let me return to uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, of course, we believe that uh, as the early Christians did, we affirm that Jesus is fully and entirely God. We say that he uh, is true God and true man, as the uh, Nicene Creed says. We believe that Jesus had two natures and they were distinct. Uh, and we believe that they're united in one person. All of that comes out of the what we will call the Chalcedonian formula, that Jesus was one person in two natures. Uh, now, again, we're making a distinction between personhood on one hand. That's your psychology. That's your personal connection. Nature has to do with your being. Or your, or your essence. Now, when, when we think about this, uh, as I mentioned, there are these challenges that arise. And I, I want to say that this came to my mind recently when I was listening to an audio CD. I've, 
I don't read ebooks, but because I have a lengthy commute and I need to keep my mind occupied <laughs> uh, while I'm waiting on the 91 freeway uh, for cars to move, um, I, I remember one time I went to a speaking engagement in Los Angeles and I, uh, I remember at one stage, I think it was on the 405, I, it, took me, it took me a half an hour to go one mile. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was a slow trek. Well, I have discovered that it, it actually helps me if I have something to listen to. I like to listen to music, but sometimes I want something different. So I've been listening to an audio CD that is entitled Thomas Aquinas, Understanding the Universal Teacher's Greatest Ideas. And it is uh, presented by one of the great uh, Christian philosophers, Catholic philosopher. Her name is Eleanor Stump. Uh, she teaches at St. Louis University. In fact, if our listeners remember Miguel and Dara, uh, he is a philosopher. He is in the scholar community. He was a visiting scholar some months ago. Well, Miguel was a student under Eleanor Stump. And I would say that Eleanor Stump is held at the level of somebody like uh, Alvin Plantica or Richard Swinburne. She is a very distinguished scholar. Um, and, you know, she defends the great Christian truths of the incarnation, the atonement, and she's a specialist on Thomas Aquinas. Hmm. And so some of her discussion just reminded me how important some of this material is, and I'll reference her. Now, let me look at two things. Uh, the first thing is, couldn't somebody say, isn't saying Jesus Christ is God and human a logical contradiction? Now, what do, what do we mean by that? Well, think about it. I mean, if, if Jesus is divine and human, aren't there things about having a divine nature that clash with having a human nature? I mean, in our previous program, we said certain things about Jesus' humanity, his human life on earth. We said that he got tired. We said that he got hungry. We said that he suffered. We even said he died. Well, a divine nature never gets hungry. It never gets tired. A divine nature cannot suffer. A divine nature cannot die. So isn't saying that Jesus had a, div a divine nature and a human nature, aren't we creating kind of a hopeless logical contradiction? And if it is, in fact, contradictory, then it couldn't possibly be true. Now, the challenge here, of course, is this is right at the heart of Christianity. Uh, the incarnation is all of the branches of Christendom are ferment. And it's so critical to things we think are important as well, like the atonement. So we, we need to kind of get to the bottom of this. Well, I think here we need to think very carefully about logic and theology. The law of non-contradiction says... Nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. So A and A cannot be A, and while it's A, be non-A at the same time and in the same respect. Uh, you could put it, instead of ontologically or metaphysically, you could cast it in an epistemological context, 
all I mean by that is moving from being or essence, we can also talk about it in terms of knowledge. A statement cannot be true and at the same time in the same way it's true also be false. So is it, is it true that the, the divine, the qualities attributed to the divine nature and the qualities attributed to the human nature, and since Christ held both of these natures, doesn't it create just a huge contradiction? I think the answer is it's not contradictory because we are saying after all that Jesus had two natures, um, his humanity and his divinity. We're talking really about two things, two different things. Mm -hmm. We're not saying what is true of the divinity is not true of the divinity or what's true of the humanity is not true of the humanity. To say, for example, that Jesus is God and not God or man and not man, that does raise questions. But we're saying that uh, through Jesus's divine nature, he never got tired. He never got thirsty. He never got hungry. He didn't die in his divine nature. He didn't suffer in his divine nature. It was in his human nature, which is distinct from his divinity. In his divinity, while Jesus' humanity was on earth, Jesus shared all of those divine qualities equally with the Father and the Spirit. So I would say that it's not a contradiction because it's not in the same way, in the same respect. It's not in the exact same way. Now, so Jesus had two distinct natures, uh, deity and humanity, and they were not blurred or mixed. Now, here's the trouble, I think, with thinking of them as a third reality. Um, if you blend or mix the divinity and the humanity, then I think you open up the question of, couldn't this be then contradictory? So I don't think that um, the law of non-contradiction is violated in the incarnation uh, because the limitations of, of Jesus's humanity applied only to his human nature. Uh, not to his divine nature. So I think that we're able to say that uh, there, there is two natures. Now, the second issue, though, uh, is maybe a more difficult question, and that is how can Jesus have a divine nature with a divine mind and a divine will and a human nature with a human mind and a human will and yet not and yet be one person. So if we think about a nature and we distinguish it, uh, you know, uh, from uh, the idea of personhood, uh, in the Trinity, we talk about God is one in being, one in essence, but three in personhood. We might say that his personhood relates to psychology. We might say that being relates to essence. But how do, how do you do that? I mean, if if, uh, if personhood or uh, if we think about a, a being as having a divine uh, a mind and a will, it seems that Jesus had two minds and two wills. You, tend, you see, I tend to think of my personality, my personhood is entailed in my mind, in my thinking, in my, my will and my choices that I make. It seems like that associates with personhood, 
rather than nature. At least that's where I, I mean, I, I that's where I, it, it's confusing. Well, um, let's put it this way, that, that in terms of being, you're talking about, um, you're talking about what we call ontology. That's the essence of a, of a being. Uh, you know, you're a human being. God is a divine being. An angelic, an angel is an, has angelic being. A cat or a dog has animal being. And those types of beings are, are different. Now, um, but we also believe that, that God and angels and human beings and animals have some kind of mind and they have some kind of will. And so the question then is, when it comes to mind and will, um, again, all of the beings we've talked about have minds and wills. So to have a mind and will is to be part of your being. But now the question is, how could you be, how could you have a, a divine mind and will and a human mind and will and be one person rather than two persons? Right. So moving from ontology to psychology, now, now, it is a challenging issue. Now, if you said Jesus didn't have, if Jesus didn't have a human mind and will, would he be a real person? Uh, that is what, uh, let me, let me re restate that. If Jesus didn't have a human mind and a human will, um, would he be human? Uh, if Jesus didn't have a divine mind and a divine will, would he be God? Now, of course, the question is, um, and Dave, there's, there's no problem with wrestling with this because it's difficult. How, how can these two natures be in that one individual person? Right. Now, uh, here, here's, a couple, here's a couple ideas that we, that we can talk about. Um, is, is there a model of explanation for something like this? Um, and, and again, the classical Christian interpretation is uh, you don't have two people. So, so Jesus, the, the one person is the divine son of God. Now, how, how is something like that possible? Well, uh, Eleanor Stump, she, she raises this issue. She says, look, um, what if, uh, what if I was going to do a play and I had to play someone who was blind? And, uh, the problem is I, I don't know how as a person with 2020 vision, she says, I don't know how people who are blind react to things. I, um, I don't, you know, I don't know how they walk down the street. I don't know how they navigate through all of these things. So she says, look, uh, if I want to play a blind person, maybe I'll go out and get something that will cover my eyes so I'm not able to see. And then I'll have some kind of the experience of, of what it means to be blind. And she says, so in that context, the, these blinders are put over the context of, of my sight. 
she then says that maybe that was the way it was with Jesus. That is, Jesus had access uh, to two minds. He could act, uh, he could look at the world through his divine mind, or he could look at the world through his human mind, and he could act from the standpoint of his divinity and his humanity. I mean, while Jesus was on earth, Jesus was still, the second person of the Trinity was still upholding the world, if, if you uh, can think of it that way. So her idea, and she's bringing this forth from Thomas Aquinas, is maybe that's the way we should think about it. We should think about two minds, but minds and will don't destroy the idea of being a single person. Jesus had a, a unified psychology. He, he didn't have a voice on the right side of his shoulder and the one on the left side of his shoulder, you know, going back and forth, there was a, a unified psychological state within him. And so uh, Eleanor Stump advocates that in the context of Thomas Aquinas, maybe we can think about it from that vantage point, that there are these two minds and Jesus could have access to, to one or the other. Now, um, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And she is again trying to convey the idea that there are ways of making this, um, uh, of, of making this mystery something that is reasonable and conceivable, that there is a way of kind of making sense of this. Now, I kind of like that, but I like two others, I think, a little better, even though I think that they're they're very similar. Um, in my books, I quote from Gerald Bray. Gerald Bray is a Reformed theologian who is also an Anglican. He's written a number of books on, on Jesus Christ. He specializes in Christology and theology, even has a systematic theology. Well, he, he says, maybe we could think about the incarnation in the context of a person who has two nationalities. So, um, you know, let's say a, let's say a person ha has, let's say they're born in Mexico and they are educated in Mexico. And of course their language uh, is Spanish. But let's say they uh, then later in their career move to America and maybe their graduate studies are in America and in English. So this person has two nationalities, speaks two languages. Gerald Bray says, maybe we could think of the incarnation in that context in that this person is from two countries analogous to the way Jesus has a divine country, if you will, and a human country, but he remains a single person. He's from two different places, and he speaks two different languages, but he's the same person. Now, I've done some language studies. I've studied uh, Latin, and I've studied Greek, and a little bit of Hebrew, and uh, I, I've also studied English, not as well as I wish I, or I sometimes think I should have studied harder 
my language skills, but I'm always fascinated with people who speak multiple languages. Um, some have suggested that J.R.R. Tolkien knew as many as 15 languages. He even invented <clears throat> languages for his, for his mythological stories. Now, is uh, a bright bulb, I think. Um, well, I'm always interested in people who can speak multiple languages and they don't seem to they don't seem to stop and yawn and then shift the gear to the next language. It's almost a seamless thing. I, I remember watching uh, Netanyahu, the, the former prime minister of Israel, and part of his education is in America, but of course he is a Jew and was trained in his, his own language and his own religion. I remember one time he was at a press conference and people were asking him questions and he was talking in Hebrew and then immediately shift over to English. And he spoke in both languages without kind of any accent. It was like, how does he do that? How, how, does he, how is he able to shift? How is a person able to be from two different countries, speak two different languages, but be a unified person? Well, maybe that's what Gerald Bray says. Maybe that's an analogy for how Jesus could be one person, but with two natures. Remember, Nestorianism is the heresy that says Jesus was two people. Hmm. Chalcedon says, no, he was one person in two natures. Now, th that's, that's an analogy. Now, you may say, well, but that's not perfect, Ken. That's not, that's not enough. Well, remember what analogies are. We're comparing two very different things, and then we're saying they have certain qualities that they share in common. Mm -hmm. now, now, here's another way of thinking about it. This is from Paul Copan. I don't think Paul uh, invented it. By the way, I think Paul Copan is a very uh, skillful Christian philosopher uh, and apologist. He, um, I've talked with him a couple of times. He spoke at an a Reasons to Believe conference. Uh, we've even interviewed him uh, on some of our RTB programs. Uh, well, Paul, in one of his books discussing the incarnation, he says, what if there's like two levels of awareness? And here he appeals to psychology by saying, maybe we could think of the, the idea of a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. So the, the conscious mind would be the human mind. The subconscious mind would be the divine mind. Now, here you have, now, if that's right, if that's correct, if that's correct, that there is something called the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, then you and I are single persons with two minds. <laughs> If, if there really is a subconscious mind and a conscious mind, then part of your personhood means you have two minds or you have two awarenesses. Now you don't have two wills, but again, the idea there is that maybe with Jesus's incarnation, maybe his, maybe his natural state would to would be to pay to live his life through his conscious mind that is his humanity 
but underneath there is the subconscious mind or his divinity. And he could act from one or the other. I think when you read through the Gospels, it seems that Jesus basically lives through his human nature. But there are occasions where he seems maybe to appeal to his divinity. So that's an analogy, again, that says, if we think of two awareness, a conscious mind and a subconscious mind, well, uh, there's two minds in one person. You know, um, there's a place, I think it's in James, where it talks about a double-minded person. A double-minded person is someone who has a mind that pays attention to the flesh, say, and another mind that pays attention to the spirit. And he's can't seem to focus on the right one. He gives too much attention to one versus the other. I, I wonder if there's some significance to that too, as an analogy. Well, you, you, you certainly raise the question of, I mean, I mean, part of, I think, being a virtuous person, part of being a a deeply ethical person, maybe we could even say part of being a very spiritual person, is to have a unified nature to, to or or to have a unified consciousness. <laughs> and and the problem that we see is that often people kind of compartmentalize their life. I mean I I I've studied a lot about President Kennedy and JFK had a lot of really good qualities, but JFK also had some other qualities that were not good. And he seemed to he, he seemed to compartmentalize his life. There was, you know, his political life, his work, then there was his wife and his family, and then there was, you know, all of these liaisons, all of these love affairs that he would have. And I think the way he kind of live that life as he kept them all in their secret compartments. Um, I think though it caused problems because they don't stay in secret compartments. Uh, your spouse discovers uh, that you have these other relations. And uh, I think it's also hard to, I think it's also hard to be a virtuous person when you're not loyal to your most committed relationships. Uh, in this program, we've even talked about the question of could, could you live three lives? And Dave, I, I think you've raised something there that's important. You know, when a person has a psychological illness, it is easy to kind of lose kind of a unified conscious awareness and kind of bounce back and forth or in a biblical context, as you referenced. To be a double-minded person is to kind of give attention to two different things, and they may be at odds with one another. Well, um, I think what we can say at minimum is that in the field of psychology and in the, the fields of, of kind of human uh, looking deeply at anthropology, 
and then looking at language and, and looking at analogies of people speaking two languages coming from two nations, I think we've got something to work with here as a basic model for how it could be possible that Jesus could be both divine and human. He could have two natures, and yet sometimes he might look at the world through his human nature, and when he did that, there were real limitations. I mean, in our last program, we talked about some of the, uh, the qualities and, and characteristics. Let me just make a reference to them, if I could. I mean, Scripture talks about Jesus having a body. It says that he had bones. They weren't broken on the cross, that he had flesh, blood. He had a soul, a will, a spirit. We could say that he had a mind, right? Uh, and yet he, he also had a psychology, experiencing joy, sorrow, love, compassion. He wept. He was astonished. He was angry. And he had physical needs, weary, hungry, needed to sleep, thirsty, he sweat, he was tempted, he, has, he had a, a lack of knowledge. Well, we could say, if you look through the human mind, if his, uh, if his awareness came through his humanity, all of those things are true, all of those things are natural. But if he looked through the divine mind, then he never stopped upholding the world. He never stopped engaging in all of the divine qualities that are true of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what can we say about this? Um, this is mystery. And I think oftentimes when you engage in apologetics, I know for me, I can speak for me. When I talk with a non-Christian, particularly a skeptic, an atheist, a secular type of individual, I want to make it seem to him that all of Christianity is reasonable and rational, and it all makes sense. Now, the reason I do that is because I know that's the obstacle he has. He thinks, you know, you guys just make this stuff up. It's not based upon history. It's not compatible with science, reason, and logic. And I want to try to show that, he, that my faith is. But if I were to fault me, I would say this. I also need to communicate that this is still beyond me. I mean, I think I can give you a, an intelligible model regarding the Trinity and the Incarnation, but I can't tell you that I fully and completely and exhaustively understand this. I mean, it, it has a real component of faith. And I, I think if we're going to communicate historic Christianity to people, I think we want to communicate them that this is still deeply mysterious. I mean, if, if God is just like you, then he isn't much of a God. So God transcends us. And I think the emphasis, and I completely understand why apologists would do it, because I do it all the time. I want to try to make Christianity just perfectly logical, perfectly rational. But I think that what we have here is at least a, a model of a way of thinking about it. And, and could I give some praise to the early church? I mean, Dave, I remember when I recommended that book by Bruce Shelley, um, Church History in, in Plain, I forgot the title, uh, 
plain language plain or... language i think like that uh, it's a good book um i remember your response to me i said what'd you think and uh one thing by the way i want to compliment you dave i recommend books to people all the time and they don't read them usually when i recommend a book to you you read it i do <laughs> and, and you come back and say i said well what'd you think he said what a mess yeah <laughs> well i agree with that there's a lot of messiness to human beings um, uh, but I want to compliment the early church because I think when they were in these councils and they were hammering out these creeds, they, they respected mystery and they respected reason. And what I like about the creedal statements, sometimes I'm frustrated. I want them to say more, tell me how, tell me why, you know, give me the, give me everything. But they recognize that they're dealing with divine mysteries, but they're trying to deal with them in a way in which they are consistent with or don't do damage to reason and rationality. Now, I, I, I want to come back to some of this. Uh, I, I want to tell you a story. I, uh, I was... Uh, I was at a mental health facility. A family member of mine was having a real difficult time. And so uh, part of his therapy and counseling was uh, to spend some time at a mental health facility. And so I was, uh, I was sitting there with my wife and, and my family member, and we were kind of waiting. Um, waiting to see the doctors, waiting to talk with uh, a therapist. So we're in kind of a waiting room and a, and a, a gentleman came in and um, he was sitting there right beside me. And then he became very, very nervous. Uh, his body was, uh, he couldn't sit still, you know, his legs were just going up and down and uh, I could tell he was in some distress. So I, I, uh, I mean, you, you couldn't not notice it. Um, and so I said to him, I said, I said, are you okay? And uh, he said to me, he goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to see this. And he said, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, I have a mental health condition and, you know, I, I'm off my medication. And he was very embarrassed. And I said to him, you know, I said, sir, I said, you, you don't have to be embarrassed about anything. I said, I just want to make sure you're okay. And, uh, you know, um, you don't have to be embarrassed about anything. You know, I, I think, and, and I'm certainly not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Uh, my degrees are not in the mental health fields. But I, I do think when we think about a human psychology, there needs, to be, there needs to be a center, there needs to be a unity, there needs to be a coherence. And Dave, we've talked about it in a couple different ways. Uh, you know, when you are not, if you're living the Christian life and it's, your confession is at odds with your behavior, uh, there's something wrong. And I think even within the context of somebody who is struggling with a mental health problem, they're being pulled in all of these different directions. There isn't this kind of coherent kind of unity. 
uh, a stability of mind, a stability of soul. Well, I, I think that what these models tell us is that we're trying to wrestle with how Jesus could be, could have a real human nature. Not, not something phony, not something artificial. Jesus wasn't artificially human. He had a real human nature. He had a human soul. He had a human body. He had a human mind. He had a human uh, will. But yet he also had a, a divine mind and a divine will. Uh, and God doesn't have a body. And God doesn't have limitations. God doesn't have boundaries that human beings have. And yet the person, it's not like there was a human person and then a divine person. Rather, the, the person of Christ who had a divine and human nature, he was, he was the divine person. And so we can say that God did suffer. He didn't suffer through his divinity. He suffered through his humanity. Mm. We can tell people, look, um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, God, God doesn't know what it's like to suffer. You know, he is in heaven and everything. He has no challenges. He has no difficulties. He has no struggles. You know, here we're on planet Earth, we're trying to fight it out, we're trying to wrestle through all of this, we're the ones who have all of these problems. But I know in my life, what helps me, when I go through, when I have a cross in my life, and of course, my cross is never as profound as the cross of Christ, but when I go through a difficult time, what helps me is to maybe relate my cross to the Lord's cross to say that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm going through a difficult time, but I know that my Lord did too. And I, I can have a sense of a, a, a connectedness. I can have a sense that God knows this, you know, we can put it in many terms. We can say that we have a God with wounds how does that compare to Allah? How does that compare to all of the gods in the Eastern religions where you have to placate them? How is that different than the Greco-Roman gods where you don't want to get them troubled because they'll zap you? Here we have a God who takes a human nature. And, and again, I think it is coherent. I think it is coherent to, to say you could have a divine nature and a human nature, and they would, and the qualities, even though they're opposites, they're not predicated of the same nature. And so it's not a formal logical contradiction. And I think we could say that while Jesus had a divine will and a divine mind, a human mind and a human will, that we could say that there could be a, a singular unity the way that we could have a conscious mind and a subconscious mind. Um, I think there are analogies, and, and he, here's one more analogy. And Dave, it relates to the point you raised about the double-mindedness that James speaks of. Remember that as human beings, we have a soul, Dave, 
call it a spirit if you want. We have that non-physical side of us. And then we have the physical side of us. But those two are in union. Is it possible that the, the, uh, the unified human nature of body and soul, or body and spirit, is an analogy to how God could have a divine nature and a human nature and be within unity. Now, let me then just say this. Um, I personally think that we need to we we need we need to never let this go. We need to hold on to this. Uh, I think this truth is it is better than fiction. Um, you know, when I think about some of the ideas that come through science fiction, uh, when I read some of the literature uh, that has these great fictional themes, this is a truth of history where God has entered into our world. Um, and for me, it's, you know, it's just natural. I mean, I, uh, I sometimes wonder if I could be a fly on the wall, you know, I'd like, I'd like to be a fly on the wall when, when uh, Luther and Zwingli were debating uh, the Lord's Supper, or I'd like to be a fly on the wall when, you know, uh, Churchill and, and Stalin and Roosevelt met, uh, you know, thinking about post-World War II. What, what happened? What, what really happened in this kind of context? And I think the reason we need to hold on to this tenaciously is because I think it's taught in Scripture. It's taught in our creeds. And I think it is a resource to handle apologetically to philosophical claims that God is hidden, liberal claims that Jesus's divinity was elected through uh, time. I think it also is powerful when we think about the different monotheism. Why Christian rather than Jew or Muslim? And again, in our present time where people would like to say, you know, you really shouldn't hold on to your religious views too uh, tenaciously because we all got to kind of get along here. Uh, and this claim about Jesus is far too exclusive. Um, I, think, I think Christians have to say no. This is right at the, right at the forefront of what we, what we believe. Uh, the reason we know there's a God is because he's come looking for us. Yeah, wonderful. You know, I was thinking uh, as you're talking there, Ken, of an example of this in the Gospels. We have the story of Jesus getting into a boat and going with the disciples to the other side. And I guess, I guess the lake is pretty large. I forgot the name of it off the top of my head. But anyway, he falls asleep and there's a storm. And, you know, the disciples are saying, wake, wake up. Don't you care that we're going to we're going to die? Uh, so I was thinking right there. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and everything calmed. And then they said, what kind of person is this that, that he commands the wind and the water and they obey him? So you see yeah. you see both of them there. He's asleep. <laughs> but, you know, the mystery for me, Ken, is what was the divine mind, uh, his divine nature awake and saying, I'm not going to wake up the, the person. I'm going to let the disciples do that. 
I can see how it's very mysterious because we don't know how that works out. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I of course like all these Christian films. Uh, I, I like Jesus of Nazareth because I, I just think Jesus had the eyes and the look the way I think, you know, he is the, he, he's, he's one person in two natures, and you kind of get that. But yeah, I, I read this very same passage, and I'm thinking. And can you imagine the apostles? I mean, we're about to perish. We're, mm. you know, here is a natural disaster going to strike all of us. And our our leader, our Messiah, he's asleep, you know. <laughs> and yeah, these are uh, these these are extraordinary things uh, about Jesus. I wonder how how did the apostles kind of put this puzzle together in that in that kind of way? There's times when I think God's asleep in my uh, circumstances of life. <laughs> right. Well, I wish he would wake up. <laughs> don't you know that this is happening? Yeah. yeah. You know, one other uh, comment when you talked about uh, the two levels of awareness as a possible uh, analogy, uh, conscious and subconscious, you know, uh, we dream all the time. Um, and I wonder if that's a, a way to, to think about the conscious and the subconscious. That is, when I dream, sometimes I wake up and either I'm glad that I don't have to try to outrun that monster, or it's like, oh, I, that was a cool dream. I want to go back and finish it. But you can't. You know, it's <laughs> now you're in the conscious. <laughs> so I could see how, yeah, we do seem to have, uh, you know, a conscious and a subconscious there. So I, I, I appreciate that analogy. It's not perfect, but, you know, I think it does uh, help us uh, as human beings. And the, and the interesting thing is that in Hinduism, it's the dream state that's the real state and the yeah. state that is the dream state. Wow. Uh, but you certainly do. And you realize there's a whole lot more going on inside yourself than you realize. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, this has been very good, Ken, these two podcasts on the incarnation. Uh, I don't know if uh, you have anything to recommend uh, in your books about uh, this. Yeah, um, I, in my book, without a doubt, I have uh, two chapters devoted to the person of Christ. One, one deals with the question, was he man, myth, madman, mystic, uh, messiah, uh, Martian? I need to get the Martian in there. Um, then I have a second one that looks at more of a historic Christology, where we touch on some of these points. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, um, in my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, one of the seven truths that I argue for is that, that God walked the earth. So two chapters on the incarnation. And then in God Among Sages, I address the context of Jesus being a single person in two natures. And, in com and compare his life to the life of Buddha, uh, Krishna, uh, Confucius, and Muhammad. So those are some works. And I recommend other sources on the incarnation. Yeah. I would like to, uh, I've done this before, but I'm going to do it again. And that is that I think your book, um, without a doubt, is, is a fantastic compendium of questions and answers, very much like maybe like a, a lay person's systematic theology, that it really, you know, for the person who isn't going to read Grudem or, you know, some of these other systematic theology books, 
yet they can get the essence of it, these critical questions in the Christian uh, uh, life that, that need answering and have answers. And you've done a great job in putting that together in that book. So I just really highly recommend Without a Doubt by Ken Samples. Well, I appreciate that, Dave. I, I, um, I think that good apologetics has to not only address history and philosophy and science, but it needs to ground it in, in, our, in the Christian scriptures. Uh, you know, good, good apologists need to be good theologians. So thank you for that. Um, that's a book, of course, I completed when I was very ill. And I remember um, uh, when it came out and how glad I was that I was still among the living to see it. So mm. wow. thank you, Dave. All right. So there's some good summer reading material for you. Uh, you might also check out Ken's blog if you're not reading it already, uh, reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. Ken writes a blog article that uh, you can check out every other week there. And uh, a lot of those uh, blog articles are come as a result of interactions you have, Ken, on social media. So very practical help there as well. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. Let us know your comments and questions, you can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. Subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast where you get your podcast and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.